As the demand for telemedicine grows, so does the need for connectivity. 5G meets that need. Qualcomm remains focused on giving doctors and patients superior, security-rich 5G connectivity. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash inventionage. Fake money, fake teachers, fake assets. In 1971, President Richard Nixon took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, turning the U.S. dollar into fiat money, government money, fake money. In 2008, the world economy crashed when fake assets, fake mortgages, and fake financial experts led us down a path to ruin. Think about this. Why do schools choose not to teach us about money? Why are 78% of all Americans living paycheck to paycheck? Why are students staggering under a trillion dollars in student loan debt? Because a fake world makes the rich richer and the poor and middle class poorer, and that's exactly how the government wants it. The only way to protect yourself is to learn how to separate the real from the fake. Go to richdad.com to get your copy of Fake by Robert Kiyosaki and learn how to spot the manipulation of reality we live with every day. Don't get fooled again. Get your copy of Fake by Robert Kiyosaki at richdad.com. That's richdad.com. This is the Rich Dad Radio Show. The good news and bad news about money. Here's Robert Kiyosaki. Hello, hello, hello. This is Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. And I'm very excited, very happy. I mean, Kim and I are very happy. A very special guest in studio today. It's somebody I look up to, one of my mentors, person I study and read. It's uh, Jim Rickards. I read. I first read his books, Currency Wars, and that just blew me away. Because, you know, the definition of intelligence, if if I agree with Jim, he's intelligent. If I disagree, he's not intelligent. <laughs> but he's very, very intelligent. And the thing I, I like about working with him is our ability to see the future. And I'm happy to announce you guys are the first the very first to hear this, Jim and I are coming out next year. It's our book called The Ravens, and you can see our raven over here. And uh, this will be out in 2020, right? That's right. Right. Any comments on Jim, Kim, and oh, well, his impact I, on our lives? If, if right? you could, yes, big impact on our lives. And if you could see, as a listener, if you could see Robert's book, the, the Currency Wars was the same, and now Jim's latest book's coming out in July called Aftermath. And Robert has it tabbed up one side and down another. So when he says he studies Jim Rickards, he studies Jim Rickards. And not only do I study it, you know, I mean, this, and I, thank you, he gave, you shipped to me early in January. So I tore through this thing. And now it's, now it's an audible. So what I do is I read the book and then I listen to it on audible. And the impact on my knowledge is quantum. So anyway, thank you for this and book. It, it comes out comes out in July. July. And what what is important about aftermath is, and it's that you say it here, is it it's what smart investors can do to protect their assets when when we're going to hear about what's coming from Jim. So welcome, Jim. Well, thank you, and Robert. It's coming from us is called the Ravens, right here. <laughs> here. Thank you, Robert. So, thank, thank you, you. Kim. It's great to be uh, with with both of you. And you're right. The the book uh, aftermath is coming out uh, July 23rd. So. Uh, pretty soon, and uh, yeah, one of the one of the points I make is uh, first of all it has a lot of what we call predictive analytics, and not to get too technical, but just the ability to, to forecast accurately. Uh, and it's amazing you look at the the, the uh, finest institutions in the world with the greatest economic PhDs. I'm talking about the Fed, 
you know, the IMF and other institutions, their forecasting record is abysmal. Just go back, because they're always coming out with new forecasts, and everyone's, oh, here's what's going to happen. Go back over a 10-year period and look at their old forecasts from 2009, 2010, 2011. Look at what actually happened. They're not even close. If you said GDP is going to be 3.1%, it came out at 3, I would say, nice going. That's pretty close. But they'll say uh, 3.1, it'll come out at 1.4, which is a huge uh, gap, big order of magnitude. So when you say, when the top institutions with the greatest resources and the most PhDs cannot get the forecasting correct, and they can't, um, wh- you know, why even try? Why give up? And my answer is, it's not a lack of resources. It's not, it's not a lack of brain power. You've got the wrong models. Correct. And if you have the wrong model, you're going to get the wrong result every time. So then the question is- so what that's the- why they can't figure it out. Correct. And uh, they're not dumb. They're not uh, you know, Ill, ill-intentioned. Uh, they don't lack resources. They've just got the wrong models. But, but what that means is if you can discover the right models, you can bring your forecasting record way up. And that's Correct. what we've that's been what doing. That's doing. what we talk about. Yeah. And so this book, Aftermath, you know, it's just fantastic. You go into things that, like I said, it's your, I think it's your best book ever. Thank you. But all the other books were the best book at that time. And I think I'm getting smarter the more books I read. So one of the things on predicting, because that's what The Ravens is about, right. is how The Raven was a bird of prophecy. Mm-hmm. And you, you wrote about uh, Felix Summary, The Raven of Zurich. Would you mind quickly going into... Felix Summary, The Raven of Zurich, but also Bayesian economic forecasting versus what the Fed uses. Sure. Um, well, you're absolutely right, Robert. The, the Raven is a symbol of a prophecy prediction. This goes back to antiquity. It was true in ancient Greece and Rome. And of course, we have many examples. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, uh, was an omen. So it's, it's very much of an omen or a sign of the future. Um, Felix Summary was a. Um, he actually went to the University of Vienna. He was a, you know, trained Austrian school economist there, and the, his professor was Karl Menger, the founder of Austrian economics. So he was very much in the thick of that group, along with Joseph Schumpeter and and others, uh, Friedrich Hayek and and others. Yeah, can I say one one thing? There's a difference between an Austrian economist and American economists, right? Or Keynesian economists. Correct. They're, they're sort of schools of economic thought, and the Austrian uh, economic school says kind of there's no free lunch. If you print money, it's going to find its way in, into inflation. Now, whether that's uh, price, uh, uh, price increases for consumer goods is one measure, but it can also be an asset inflation. And that's one of the things we've seen in the last 10 years. There has not been much consumer inflation, a little bit, but not a lot. But there's been a lot of uh, asset inflation Correct. in stocks, stock market, real, real estate, estate, and other other uh, other asset uh, classes. And, and it's just a minor point, but wasn't Greenspan Austrian? Then he flipped to Keynesian. Greenspan was Austrian before he was chairman of the Fed. Then he flipped to a sort of a swamp creature for the for the time <laughs> year, for the years he was at the Fed. But what's interesting about Greenspan is after he left the Fed. He went right back to talking about gold in a very positive way, and gold is money, and it's the most sound form of money, and if we had had some kind of gold standard, um, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today with the debt-to-GDP ratio. But if you look at Greenspan's record carefully, I think if you're chairman of the Fed, you just can't talk about gold. It's, it, would, no. it would just sort of turn everything upside down. But in my view, Greenspan ran a shadow gold standard. He was uh, chairman from um, 1987 to uh, about 2007, give or take. It could be off a year or two there, but after uh, Paul Volcker left. But if you look at the price of gold over that period, it didn't 
uh, do very much until the end. And we had this super spike in January 1980. You know, gold was $800 an ounce, which, in, by the way, in, in real terms today would be over well over $2,000 an ounce. And we had a huge bull market from 2000 to uh, uh, 2013. Right. In 2000, the goal was about $250 an ounce. Correct. And today it's about 1300 an ounce. Right. But so of that's course, a huge jump. That's a huge jump. But along the way, it got to $1,900 an ounce right. and then crashed 50%. Now, we're in a, we're in a new bull market. The, the new bull market started in uh, December 2015. This is gold. Gold, right. right. And gold's been going up since then. But uh, you know you don't get to new highs without a bear market along the way. I talked to Jim Rogers. I'm sure oh, you yeah, know him. Oh, he wrote too. Yeah, he said, uh, um, "Look, no no commodity goes to the moon without a 50% correction along the way. You just have mm. to brace yourself for that." So, right, uh, starting in 1999 or 2000 at 299 dollars an ounce, give or take, it goes to 1900, backs down to 1050. 1050 was the low in December 2015. So, 50% retrace. 50% retrace right. exactly from the 299 base, and then today back up about 30%, not quite, to the 1300, now 1350 level. So um, so that's behaving exactly as, uh, as Jim Rogers predicted, as every commodity bull market does. There's a retracement along the way. But we've had that. That's behind us. We're now in a new bull market. But going back to the 80s and 90s, what did gold do? Traded in a range. It went sideways. It didn't, you know, it came off the $800 high. That was for about a minute. But um, it traded sort of between 250 and 450 But it's it stayed there. It never went back up to six 700 but it never went down to... 100 either. Greenspan was running a shadow gold standard. He he didn't say it. It wasn't legal. I'm, I'm a, when I say that, it wasn't uh, legally binding. I'm not saying there was any, anything illegal about it. But he looked at gold and used it as guidance. Same way you're driving down the road, you're looking at red lights, green lights, and stop signs. He looked at gold and he kept it in that range. So as far as I'm concerned, Greenspan did run a gold standard. He just didn't tell anybody. Right. And the reason gold is important because it's kind of an indicator of what's going on inside the economy and what the Fed is doing. Which can, there's a relationship between gold and the economy, right? Sure. Um, and I, I think of gold as money. I mean, people say it's a commodity. Okay, I understand you dig it up out of the ground. It's traded on commodities markets. I understand all that. But uh, it's not really a commodity. The definition of a commodity is a generic or standardized input to something else. So copper goes into wires and construction. Oil goes into energy. Uh, you know, coal, same thing. Aluminum goes into you know building all kinds of things. So all these things are commodities. Uh, oil is another one. Uh, but gold actually isn't good for anything. It's the best form of money, but it's not good for anything else. Now, people say, oh, I have gold jewelry. Okay, it's just wealth. Gold jewelry is wealth storage. You just look at an Indian bride. She's got all these gold chains. Well, it's kind of pretty looking, but that's not the point. That's her dowry. That's her uh, down payment on the house. That's her children's education. That's something, you know, as I say, she passes along to her family. So for the, so it is stored well. So it is performing a monetary function, even when it's in the form of jewelry. Beyond that, uh, I don't know, there's some five nine specialized wires for space satellites, coding a space helmet, but they're, they're trivial. So the, this is the question then. So the price of gold is going up. What does it mean to Jim Rickards? Well, uh, what I would say, yeah, when the price goes up, I would say that what's really happening is the dollar is going down. In other words, I think of gold by weight. I, I'm interested, you know, do you have a, uh, do you have a ton? Do you have uh, 50 kilos? Do you have five ounces? Whatever you have as an individual investor or as a bank, I think of it by weight. Because when someone says gold's really going up, I said, well, no, the dollar's going down. You need more dollars to purchase 
a fixed quantity of gold, which means the dollar is worth less. And when people say, gold's really going down, I say, no, the dollar's worth more, and you need fewer dollars to purchase a quantity of gold. In other words, when, you, when people talk about price, the first thing they do is they're really talking about dollars. You know, I mean, there's a euro price for gold, but it, the world market is based on dollars. You're privileging the dollar as the numerator. The numerator is your counting system. You know, is it yards, inches, feet, whatever? And if you put the dollar first and say gold is in dollars and it's going up or down, I think you have it backwards. I think you need to put gold first by weight, and then if it's worth more, the dollar's going down. If it's worth less, the dollar's going up. What, what's you know, so what's special about the dollar? Well, the dollar is, in fact, very special in the international monetary system because we don't have a gold standard. But um, that's that's sort of putting the cart before the horse. Gold is your yardstick. It's your anchor. So let me get back to something you said earlier, Jim. Sure. You talked about the Fed doesn't have the right model, so they don't. Right. They're not making the decisions are not predictive model. Yes, correct. Yes. What What do you see? coming right. that they're not doing, what do they need to be doing? Okay, the thing they're doing now that is, is just does not reflect reality, they're called equilibrium models, you know, not to get too technical, but these dynamic stochastic equilibrium models. Well, sorry, the the, the system, the, the economy is not an equilibrium system. You know, equilibrium means, okay, there's, there's some balance, there's some perfect nirvana, monetary policy, fiscal policy, real growth, inflation, you can kind of take all those variables and say, okay, we're the Fed. Uh, the, the economy really can't grow more than about 3.5%, and that's probably correct for a mature economy unless you're coming out of a recession. It grows in accordance with money supply, velocity is constant. Velocity is the turnover, you know, so I like to say if, if, I, you know, if I leave, uh, you know, Phoenix or in Scottsdale and I get a taxi cab and I pay the fare and the taxi driver puts gasoline in his tank and the gas station owner buys a present for his uh, wife – that has velocity of three. You know, my dollar was used for three dollars of goods and services. But if I stay home and watch TV, my the velocity is zero because I'm not spending the money. So you can't just look at money supply. This is the this is the biggest problem with the, with the monetarists. They equate everything with how the quantity of money, but that's not enough. You have to say what's the quantity of money times the turnover. How quickly is it turning over? And they always assume that velocity was constant, which it's not. So there are all these um, false assumptions or incorrect assumptions behind the models, and therefore you get these incorrect results. Everyone said, you know, going back to 2008, uh, when, the, when they started QE, they said, oh, the Fed printed $4 trillion. We're going to get this massive inflation. Well, it never happened. Well, they, they printed the money, but we never got the inflation. Why not? Uh, it's because velocity declined. In other words, yeah, there was more money around, but nobody was using well, it. Nobody, using nobody it. was lending it. Nobody was spending it. Nobody was borrowing it. Velocity actually declined. So the Fed, in a way, was in a desperate race, increasing the money supply as velocity was declining just to stay even. Um, so, yeah, so then what drives velocity? The answer is psychology. You know, if you're in a good mood and you go to the restaurant and you, you buy drinks for everyone at the bar and, you know, expensive gifts and take a trip or whatever, or you just do something more sober like investing, um, that will increase velocity. But if you're concerned, if you're cautious, you say, I'm going to put my money in the bank, I'm going to stick it under a mattress, so I'm, uh, I'm not going to spend which it. Which a lot I, of people are today. Correct, which a lot of people are today. That's right, because well, I don't know what's coming the next. In 2008, there was one newsletter writer, his whole indicator, he lived in La Jolla, very famous guy. And he went by the restaurant indicator. Yeah. He says if people were not in the restaurants, they were terrified. Right. That's a good proxy for velocity because it means that people weren't spending the money. So when you factor in velocity, okay, now we don't have a classic monetarist model anymore. What do we have? 
We have a behavioral model. We have a psychological model. So then you've got to get into the psychology. What you know, and, and Keynes. Yeah, you know, I actually um, I don't have very many good things to say about modern Keynesian uh, economists, but I like John Maynard Keynes because yeah. he wasn't the doctrinaire uh, person that he, he is presented as today. He actually and his main doctrine was. Well, he was well. Keynesian economics, named after him, which mm-hmm. is that uh, when you're in a recession or a depression and people aren't spending, the government can go spend the money for them, and that'll get the what he called the animal spirits going, and then the economy will grow. Uh, but Keynes was above all a pragmatist. He was not an ideologue, and he did write these books and they had some some math in them, and they kind of worked along those lines. But that was his solution to a very severe uh, recession and depression in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Well, it wasn't a bad idea for the economy back then. The problem is it's been taken as an all-purpose, all-time remedy to everything, and what government doesn't like to spend more money if they can. And just to kind of tie it back to gold, in 1914, when World War I started, all the major powers went off the gold standard. They said, we've got to keep our gold. This is real money, and this is how we're going to win the war. And the Bank of England was faced, uh, and the Exchequer was faced with the same choice. Keynes was an advisor to the Exchequer. He said, don't go off the gold standard, stay on the gold standard. And the reason was that if you did that, you would preserve your reputation and preserve your credit. He said, the the war is not going to be won with money or gold. It's going to be won with credit. But if you stay on the gold standard, you'll have the credit. And that's exactly what happened. Pierpont Morgan, sorry, Jack Morgan, uh, Pierpont's son, uh, organized huge loans for England and France and nothing for Germany. And England won the war. So the point is, Keynes got that right. Now, flash forward, 1925, he's talking to Churchill, and Churchill wants to go back to the gold standard. And Keynes is telling him, you got the price wrong. You know, we can't go back at you know, £4.25 or whatever the exact rate was. Um, we've got to devalue the sterling by half because we doubled the money supply to fight the war. Churchill ignored Keynes' advice, and, um, and they went into a recession, depression, before the rest of the world. Flash forward, 1944, you're at Bretton Woods. Keynes wanted a gold standard. And this isn't speculation. He wrote papers. He gave formal presentations. So 1914 is pro-gold. 1925, he's telling Churchill, you're nuts. You can't go back to a gold standard at this price. 1944, he's pro-gold again. I call that a pragmatist, not an ideologue. Right. And that, that's, he changed his mind. He changed his mind right. because the, the, the conditions changed. And uh, we need a little more of that today instead of these uh, these uh, these uh, ideologues. Yeah. Once again, Robert Kiyosaki, the Mitchell Radio Show, has a very special guest today in studio. It's Jim Rickards. His brand new book is called Aftermath, The Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Chaos. Coming Chaos. So when we come back, we'll be going more into Jim's new book on wealth preservation, but also we'll pick up the discussion on why the top economists in the world at the Fed, I think there's a thousand of them, you know, they all went to MIT or Harvard or Yale or Stanford, and they still can't get it right. So Jim's going to talk about, again, our our newest book coming out next year is called The Ravens. And Jim uses Felix Sumrey's process. It's called Bayesian forecasting, Bayesian economics, and how you can get it more accurate than what the Fed is using. So we come back. Our whole purpose here is to have you better be able to see the future and protect yourself from the idiots running the show. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. Don't be like Charlie. Charlie is that do-it-yourselfer who does himself in. Do-it-yourself is good for tile and grout. It is not good for asset protection. 
Charlie thought he'd save a few dollars forming his LLC online. With no guidance, he did it wrong. When he sold the property, he lost thousands and thousands of dollars. He did himself in by trying to do it himself. Don't burn yourself. Use Corporate Direct to set up and maintain your LLCs and corporations. Corporate Direct is owned and operated by attorney and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton. Garrett wrote the bestsellers, Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. He is Robert Kiyosaki's attorney for asset protection. He and his team will do it right. Visit them at CorporateDirect.com or call 800-600-1760. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off your formation fee. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. What is your number one expense in life? Your number one expense. It's taxes. And I've asked the question is, how come there's no financial education in school, but why isn't there education on taxes either? You know, they tell you to save money, which is stupid. They tell you to invest in the stock market, which is stupid. But what they teach you about taxes? So here we have Rich Dad Advisor, Tom Wheelwright. We're talking about his revision for his book, Tax-Free Wealth. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Robert. So what's the tax-free wealth about? What what's different this time? It's a revised edition. Well, so what we did was is we ha this is the first major tax reform we've had in 30 years, 2017. Right. Was 86 was the last one. 86 was last one back right. when I was in Washington D.C. So many guys got wiped out because of that tax change. <laughs> they did. They yeah. did. It wiped out an entire industry, savings and loans. This new tax law is just as big, but in a very different way. It affects different industries. You know, the tax law is always a series of incentives. And the question is always which incentives and which ones apply to me. And so the, the key to revising tax-free wealth was what is it, what changed so much in this new tax law that we can absolutely take advantage of, I mean, seriously, the amazing incentives. For example, I mean, the bonus depreciation, for example, for real estate is unbelievable. You buy a, a million dollar apartment, get a $300,000 reduction or more the very first year. So if you want to make more money and pay less taxes like Donald Trump and myself, get Tom's book, Tax-Free Wealth. Log on to richdadradio.com while you listen. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki. Welcome back, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Once again, you can listen to the Rich Dad Radio program anytime, anywhere on iTunes or Android. And all of our programs are archived at richdadradio.com. We archive it for one reason. It's because repetition is how we learn. So if you listen to this program once or twice more, you'll pick up 70% more. Who knows? But it also retain it longer. And most importantly, you have friends, family members, and business associates who should know this information. Please go to Rich Dad Radio, pull up this podcast with Jim Records, and listen to it together and discuss it. And you'll find your, your brain power will accelerate quantumly rather than just listening to it passively. So once again, our special guest is Jim Records. He is talking about his latest book, is Aftermath. I got the early edition of it. Uh, as you guys can see on the television set, I do study, I do read, everything is indexed. And as soon as I get the audible version, I'm gonna to listen to it because I learn more by listening to Jim, Jim's voice talk about his book, Aftermath. And it's the seven circuits of wealth preservation in the coming chaos, the coming chaos. Any comments, Kim? Well, he's all, and Jim's also the author of Currency Wars, The Death of Money, The New Case for Gold, The Road to Ruin, and this is the latest book in uh, 
I have not yet read it. I know I'm, I get it, I get it through Robert bits and pieces, um, but I know it. What's what I think a lot of people want to know is aftermath. What what do you see coming? What and the last thing I'll shamelessly promote is Jim and I are co-authoring a book. It's called The Ravens. It'll be out in 2020. It's about the raven, which is the bird of prophecy. But more importantly, the purpose of the raven is to teach you how to see the future so you can prepare and how you can prosper from it instead of getting run over with whatever is going to happen. So, Jim, we were talking about what you see coming in the future. But before we go into that, we talked about how the Fed is using what you call the equilibrium model. Right. And you're... And you prefer the Bayesian model. Could you explain Bayesian model forecasting? Sure. Uh, Bayesian statistics is a branch of statistics. And the main branch of statistics is, is called frequentist, just frequent. Uh, and basically says, give me more data. Data, data, data. The more data I have, the better uh, prediction I can make. That's the Fed. That's the Fed. Well, that's the Fed and, and actually most academics. But, but it's exactly what the Fed does. Uh, but what do you do when you don't have any data? What do you do when you have to solve a life or death problem and you only have maybe one data point instead of a million? And this is the problem we confronted at the CIA after 9-11, which is we had one exactly one attack of this kind. Now, a frequentist would say, well, okay, let's, let's wait until there are 30 more attacks and 100,000 dead, <laughs> oh, and then we'll have a nice database and we, we can go. work with it. But you don't have that luxury. You're, it's, these are life or death problems. These are existential problems. So what do you do when you don't have enough data? You make an assumption anyway. You use intuition. You use the little data you have. If you actually say, I have nothing to go on, I have no idea what's going to happen, you make it 50-50. 50% chance this will happen, 50% chance it won't. But then as you go forward, more data comes in, and you apply the data to the assumption on a conditional basis, meaning what is the likelihood that the second thing would happen if the first thing were true? or not true, and then you update. And so if the subsequent data tends to confirm one part of the hypothesis, you increase that probability. Maybe you go from 50 to 55 to 60, et cetera, or you decrease it. And this is the hard part because you have to be willing to confront data that contradicts your hypothesis. If something comes in that says, no, you were wrong the first time, you have to be honest and lower those probabilities. And that's where a lot of times it falls down because people – um, this is called confirmation bias. You reject the thing that disagrees with you and you accept the thing that agrees with you. Well, if you do that, you're pretty much going to be wrong. So you have to be humble and you have to be uh, able to take a data that contradicts what you're saying. But if it tends to confirm what you're saying, then you increase the probability. And uh, our friend Felix Sommery, we were um, talking about earlier, he left the University of Vienna, but instead of becoming an academic economist, he became a wealth manager and banker, moved to Switzerland, and uh, he was, but he was very plugged in. He was, he ran the Central Bank of Belgium. He was, he was considered the leading expert on foreign exchange uh, at the time, and maybe if he were alive today, he still would be. But, um, so this is a picture of July 1914. It's weeks before World War I. But until then, this is, people looked around and said, this is the most prosperous time in history. You know, the weather in Europe was great that summer. Uh, you know, the British Empire was at its height. Prosperity seemed everywhere. Uh, the fact that Serbia and Austria were having a little dust-up didn't seem too, too significant. Uh, but Sumri had his antenna out, and he talked to a, a cousin of the King of England who had just come back from meeting uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, who was the, the emperor of uh, of, of Germany uh, and, and the German Empire. 
And uh, the other guy said to somebody, he says, well, I've just come back from meeting with my cousin, Willie. And he says <laughs> the odds of war between England and Germany are zero. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but but Summary had more than an instinct. He knew that often the elites are the last to know. Mm-hmm. Everyone says, oh, you're rich, you're a billionaire, you're in the White House, you're you know whatever it may, Silicon Valley, you know more than anybody. It's usually not true. They are rich, I'll give them that. But, uh, and they're smart, I'm not, I'm not detracting uh, from that, but their predictive ability is very low. And the reason is they're in a bubble. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a billionaire and all you do is talk to other billionaires in a couple clubs in Silicon Valley or Washington or New York, you're actually not gonna learn anything because it's just an echo chamber. You've got to get out and kind of deal with real, you know, real people and real situations in the summer. Is that, of, is that the Fed and is that the, the Fed, the, like the government, Kim, a very much. good question. They're all in a bubble. The Fed's in a bubble. The IMS in a bubble. Uh, Silicon Valley billionaires are in a bubble. I'm not saying they're dumb yeah. and they are rich, but they uh, they just hang out with other people like themselves. You're never going to learn anything yeah. if that's what you do. And so, uh, summary applied this to this you know relative of the king who just met with a Kaiser. He said, "You people are all talking to each other. You're not looking at the real world." He immediately sold all of his clients' assets, converted it to gold, moved the gold to Norway and Switzerland, and sat tight. And when World War, War, when World War I was over, everyone else was wiped out, and his clients were rich. So he, he basically, he didn't take the information at face value. He said, these are people who actually don't know what they're talking about. So uh, uh, in, in the summer of uh, 2016, before the 2016 election, I took a three-hour Greyhound bus from... Uh, uh, Spokane, Washington to Moses Lake, Washington. Moses Lake is in the desert. They, they don't even have a bus stop. They drop you off at a truck stop and you get picked <laughs> up. But I thought to myself... I can't imagine you on a gray helmet. Well, I was, but but my point is, I was, I was thinking a couple of things. How many of my peers in you know, New York or Washington or analysts, authors, policymakers, whatever, take a Greyhound bus for three hours in Washington? The answer is none. But when you're on a Greyhound bus, you meet interesting people, you talk to the driver, you talk to people at the truck stop. Um, and one of the things I saw was uh, you know not to not to be uh, uh, too political, but Trump signs everywhere. Now, if you've ever been involved in local politics, it takes a lot of work to to get those yard signs out. You got to get them. You got to plant it in your uh, front yard, and you got to deal with all the criticism that comes along with it. And I saw no Hillary signs. And I'm, I'm not making a partisan statement. I'm just like, hey, if, but if you're a Bayesian, going back to the original point, that's data. If you have a hypothesis, you know, it's 50-50 Hillary or Trump because you just, you just don't know. So you didn't want to use the polls then? Uh, no, the polls were badly flawed. But I actually, I did use the polls adjusted for uh, flaws. And let me give you, you let me give you a concrete example. Um, the polls skew. They have to ask more Democrats than Republicans. Well, there actually are more Democrats than Republicans. But what should the skew be? It should be maybe 54-46, 55-45 if you want to push it. But the actual polls were skewed 56, 57 percent Democrats, which is too much. So they were oversampling Democrats, number one. Number two, within the oversample, they were oversampling African-Americans. Well, African-Americans vote 90 percent Democratic. So every African-American in the oversample actually weights it even more in favor of the Democrats. Well, when you do the math, you find out that that's giving Hillary like a two to three point advantage which is what they were showing. But if you subtract three points, Trump's ahead by one. So what you had to do was adjust the polls for the skew and the bias, and you would come out in the right place, which showed that Trump was gonna win. And then they got the yard signs. And um, But there, uh, I was at a, a, I was at an, a large evangelical uh, community, uh, call it a camp or whatever you want, um, in the Ozarks. 
And uh, I was treading very lightly because I, I do economics. I don't really do politics. But I said this was um, in March 2016 before the Indiana primary when a lot of anti-Trumpers were rooting for Ted Cruz. And I said, and the Indiana primary was coming up. I said, look, Ted Cruz, he's got, um, he's got a lock on the evangelical vote, uh, and that's going to maybe Trump will lose Indiana. And, uh, but in the course of my remarks, my, my, state, my, my, my presentation, I had to mention Trump just in passing. Well, the entire crowd rose to their feet and started applauding. And I, it was a shock to me. I was like, whoa, the evangelicals like Trump. That means Trump wins. Uh, and I wasn't expecting that from an evangelical audience. But again, yard signs, um, evangelicals applauding. These are this is an example of the Bayesian technique. You start with your and it's, 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 there's math behind it, but uh, you start with your um, uh, formula, and then you say, well, what what is the probability? What is the conditional probability that Trump will win if evangelicals are supporting him? Well, it's higher. Like that, that, that's a huge block of the electorate. Twenty five million evangelicals. Five million stayed home in 2016 because they didn't want to vote for Ron. Or sorry, 2012 rather. Put them back in the equation, give them to Trump's column. He wins. Now, again, you don't want to be too categorical, but you have to be willing to update, update, update. That's the key to the Bayesian technique. We learned it. Uh, I learned it at the CIA. It's used in intelligence gathering because what is an intelligence agency for? You ask them to solve the problems where you don't have enough data. If you had data, a high school kid could do it. But if you don't have data. How do you do the analysis? So it's a very powerful technique. It, it gets much better results than what the Fed does. Okay. So two things real quickly. Speaking of the CIA, in your book, Aftermath, which everybody should read because I think it's your best book, The Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation, The Coming Chaos. And again, we do our best to be not political. But you, in there, you, you basically hang the Clintons out to dry from what you guys, what you saw at the CIA. Right. I went, when it was, uh, at the time I was in the CIA, one of the things I was asked to do, um, there were, in 2006 there was a famous case. Well, by the way, we should explain to listeners, uh, uh, there's an agency called CFIUS, uh, C-F-I-U-S, but that's actually an acronym for Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. If you're a foreign company and you want to buy a U.S. company, you have to get reviewed by CFIUS for national security reasons. Now, there are all kinds of other laws that apply, right. you know, antitrust or whatever. But this is uh, – so if you're a, a British company and you want to buy Ben & Jerry's ice cream, nobody cares. Nobody thinks that's a national security threat. But if you're a Russian company or a Chinese company and you want to buy Verizon, no way. There's no way that those uh, adversaries in the United States are going to be allowed to buy our major telecommunications company. And then there's everything in between. So the, pur the purpose of CFIUS is to review um, these potential acquisitions – the intelligence community was uh, the intelligence community doesn't get to vote on the acquisition, but they report back based on their sourcing as to whether there's a threat or not. Um, but in 2006, they uh, approved the Dubai port deal. Dubai was going to buy the major port operations in the U.S. Bush White House was all for it. Dubai is a friend of the U.S., not a problem. Thing blows up big time. Chuck Schumer comes out on a Sunday, says, you know, and he used some very derogatory terms about Arabs, but we're selling, we're selling our port system to the Arabs, et cetera. And it became a political disaster. It wasn't really a national security threat, but it was a political disaster. So the intelligence community decided to set up a private sector advisory panel to help them, again, get out of the bubble and say, how do these things look in the real world? I was asked to recruit all the members of the panel, which I did. I put together a mix of Lawyers, hedge fund people, Wall Street people, uh, subject matter experts, et cetera. There were 12 of us. I called it the Dirty Dozen. And we met four times a year at Langley to uh, to look at these deals. We were never shown 
the uh, Russian acquisition of Uranium One, a large portion of the U.S. uranium assets, which was sponsored by Bill and Hillary Clinton in exchange for hundreds of millions of dollars of contributions to their foundation, um, $500,000 speaking fees from Russians to Bill Clinton. I mean, I, I'm a speaker, but I don't get 500000 for speech. I can guarantee it. Um, and uh, and I, I could be swayed for 500000 Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a nice round number. But uh, uh but I thought to myself, and then later this committee was disbanded. After everyone involved saying what a success it was, it was like, great job, you picked the right people, this has been incredibly valuable to us. And we did work on a lot of deals. But uh, I was like, gee, why did they disband something that was working so well? I was actually asked by the Pentagon to do the same thing for them because it worked so well. So why did they disband something that worked so well? And why were we not shown the one deal that was the most sensitive at all? I mean. I, I talked about UK buying Ben and Jerry's. How about Russia buying our uranium? Oh. How, how how does that get through yeah. in a million years from a national security perspective? It was only later when all this came out, it was not all known at the time, that it was pretty clear. It was General Clapper who uh, terminated our group. It was pretty clear that this was part of a broader setup in the government to smooth the way for Russian acquisition of U.S. uranium. This is not Trump collusion. This is the Clintons. Uh, jeopardizing U.S. national security. So uh, I write about that. I write about the work we did, uh, which we're very proud of, um, how we were railroaded away from this Uranium One deal. And then there's a little vignette. I was uh, the uh, the target, if you will, of an attempted uh, recruitment by the Russians, uh, which I uh, promptly reported to uh, counterintelligence, and uh, they, they then did their own thing on that. Uh, but it was an interesting time and place, but it's still going on. Wow. It's amazing. Huh? Once again, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Day Radio Show. Our guest today is James Rickards. His latest book is called Aftermath. The first book I read was Currency Wars, which is everybody hears about today, but 10 years ago, the idea of a currency war was a new idea. So once again, this book is called Aftermath, The Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Chaos. The coming so, chaos. I want to hear about the coming chaos. <laughs> What's so, the coming chaos? What, what is chaos? Yeah. Well, uh, look, it's obviously uh, some kind of financial collapse, but the thing is how big is it and does it have uh, implications for social disorder? Does it get worse? Is it, Are we on the way to Venezuela or is this a replay of 2008, maybe a little bit bigger? So that's that's the context we have to put this in. Okay. So once again, Robert Kiyosaki, uh, when we come back, we'll be asking Jim further questions. I'm still disturbed by the Clintons, but... Um, we come back, we'll go into how education, I mean, he's going to talk about how the business schools stopped teaching gold as part of the overall plan here. So when we come back, you'll find out more what Jim Records and his new book, Aftermath, will talk about, but more importantly, how you can prepare, predict, and prosper in the coming future. You're listening to The Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. Don't be like Charlie. Charlie is that do-it-yourselfer who does himself in. Do-it-yourself is good for tile and grout. It is not good for asset protection. Charlie thought he'd save a few dollars forming his LLC online. With no guidance, he did it wrong. When he sold the property, he lost thousands and thousands of dollars. He did himself in by trying to do it himself. Don't burn yourself. Use Corporate Direct to set up and maintain your LLCs and corporations. Corporate Direct is owned and operated by attorney and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton. Garrett wrote the bestsellers, Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. He is Robert Kiyosaki's attorney for asset protection. He and his team will do it right. 
Visit them at CorporateDirect.com or call 800-600-1760. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off your formation fee. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. It pays to listen. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad Radio Show. Welcome back, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Once again, listen to the Rich Dad Radio Show anytime, anywhere on iTunes or Android. And all of our programs are archived at richdadradio.com. We archived it so you can listen to it again, because we'll listen to it again, you'll learn more. But you also have your friends, family, and business associates listen to this. At this time, we generally go in to ask Robert, but since our, one of our favorite guests, James, James Rickards, is in our studio in Scottsdale, Arizona, all the way from New Hampshire. And we're talking about his latest book, Aftermath, The Seven Circuits of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Chaos. And as those of you guys can see, there's a lot in this book. I mean, there is so much. I could stand here forever. And every it is a page turner, but it just asks more questions. I mean, you go into such depth on it, I just realized how, how little I know, we know, and the people know. Any comments, Kim? Well, that's what's fascinating, Jim, is is all of the um, your experiences and working with the CIA and, and all of this. And so you, you have such an inside look on what's going on, really going on, mm-hmm. versus what we hear in you know in the news and all the all the propaganda. Plus, you know, plus Jim comes from the hedge fund background. Then he worked with the Defense Department, that's what we understand currency wars. And now he's talking about what what was like to work with the CIA. So I think I would prefer right now to hear what it's like to work with the CIA, but also, you know, is Trump going to get even now? That's my question. And how much dirt does he have? Well, uh, it's it's very interesting, Robert. You go back to um, the early days of the Cold War, the 1960s, when the U.S. was building up its nuclear arsenal and Russia, Soviet Union at the time, was building up its nuclear arsenal. And there were all these uh, what's called game theory. And game theory is, you know, uh, two you know, prisoners dilemma. But how do you outthink the other person, or what? What do they do? They what's do, what's your do. response to what they do? So this was applied to nuclear war fighting, and uh, it actually worked extremely well for a number of reasons. And one, there were only two parties. It wasn't multi-party, well, two, but it wasn't three, five, ten, where it gets exponentially more difficult. Uh, they had pretty good lines of communication. Not too much commerce, but the, the communication lines were clear. And the consequences were clear. So that's a good situation for game theory. Uh, and what we used to call it was um, there are two scorpions in a bottle. And the thing about scorpion, one scorpion stings the other. Okay, the victim's going to die, but has just enough strength left to sting back and you both die. So the, the message from that model was don't start a nuclear war because they'll shoot back at you. And then you got into, well, do they have enough to shoot back after you shoot at them? That's why we kept building more missiles. Like, Why do you need more missiles? Well, we need to survive the first strike. So we can do the second strike. And that was the metaphor there. So kind of you know, bring that forward to where we are in Washington today, which is a bit of a mess. But uh, you've got sort of two scorpions. One is you can say the White House and Trump and Trump supporters and people who are not highly partisan in my view but uh, very capable at the Justice Department and the U.S. Attorney's offices around the country and elsewhere. And then you have the House um, 
a majority of the Democratic Party and House representatives, the media, and all the people who like to gang up on Trump. So I don't want to, you know, I, 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 I have my opinions on this. Everyone does. We don't have to get too partisan. But just to put that in game theory, so now that the Mueller report has uh, and the Attorney General have cleared Trump of any uh, wrongdoing, uh, you know, did he push the line a little bit? Yeah, well, that's Trump. But it didn't break the law. Um, and so now they want to what they call investigate the investigators. Uh, William Barr, the Attorney General, has asked uh, John Durham, uh, the the U.S. Attorney for Connecticut. And Connecticut is not really relevant except Comey lives there. But uh, but but you could pick almost any U.S. Attorney for a job like this to look into uh, the abuses by the intelligence community, by the the FBI, which is part of the intelligence community. Uh, misrepresentations to the secret court. We have something called the FISA court, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that authorizes something like a star chamber. When you go into the FISA court for a warrant, the other side doesn't get to show up. And normally, if somebody sues you, you get show up, you put on your defense, it's fair. The other side doesn't get to show up. They don't even know what's happening. And a search warrant is issued, and you're being spied upon, and you don't even know it. And the theory is that, well, okay, we can do that where national security is at stake. Uh, we have to kind of uh, you know, push the rules a little bit. Well, what was the national security implication of a guy running for president? You know, that's supposed to be a free country. You're supposed to be able to do that. But that intelligence thing was turned on Trump with very little support. So uh, now they're, now they're going to look at who was spying on Trump. Correct. There's a, okay, so now that Trump's been cleared, let's go back and look at the people who authorized this. And it was James Comey. and uh, head of the FBI. Head of, James Comey, head of the FBI, his deputy uh, – uh, Peter Strzok, um, his, his girlfriend, uh, one, one of his, who she might have been a girlfriend, but she was also a lawyer mm-hmm. for the FBI. So she had a very responsible Lisa Page, uh, Andrew McCabe, who uh, actually was the deputy director. So that's that group. So they're now under scrutiny, as uh, you know, some people say they better lawyer up. They have lawyered up. Uh, we know some criminal investigations are pending, meaning the grand juries are proceeding. We'll see how that plays out. Now, the other scorpion is Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. They're no fans of Trump. The Democrats want to win the election in 2020. Uh, and they're going down the impeachment path. Now, um, uh, Pelosi keeps saying, well, it's too soon to, to start impeachment proceedings. And politically, she knows it's kind of a loser for the Democrats. When Bill Clinton was impeached, his popularity went up. <laughs> and it did, and significantly, and he kind of ended on a high note, despite being the, only the second president in history to be impeached. And he was impeached, but he, ne- he never got kicked out of office. Correct, because that, that's a trial in the Senate. And by the way, if, if Trump were impeached, yeah. it goes over to the Senate. McConnell has already said, this is, is going to be like a five-minute trial, and the guy's going to get off. So why are you bothering with this? And Pelosi knows that, too, because the Republicans have a big majority. Well, not a big majority, but a big enough majority in the Senate. But Pelosi's getting pressure from... Uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Omar and uh, but not just the, the, the newcomers. Uh, Nadler wants impeachment. Uh, um, you know, Elijah Cummings wants impeachment. Maxine Waters. These are very senior Democrats. So the so the one scorpion is, you know, will the House impeach Donald Trump? And they're heading in that direction. They haven't started formal proceedings, but in all but name, that's what they're doing. But will the Trump Justice Department put half the, the, the anti-Trump crowd in jail, uh, which is, uh, you know, you've got to keep an open mind. But, but these are the two scorpions. Now, normally the way things work in the swamp, but it's also the way things work in the mafia, you have what you call a sit-down. With the two sides that are at war, they sit down with each other, say, you know, this isn't good for anybody. Let's just, everyone just go our way. Let bygones be bygones. 
And for that, and that's usually what happens in Washington. The House is like, we'll back off if you back off. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody gets impeached. That's that. I don't see that happening. I, in my view, this is headed for a shootout. Uh, as we get closer to the election, uh, I think the markets uh, and investors are underestimating the impact of this. You, look, you get tired of the news every day. It's a new headline. You, know, you did this, you did that, whatever. Um, but uh, but don't get tired of it. Pay attention to it because nothing's more important. And there's nothing markets hate more than uncertainty. You know, mm-hmm. in a bull market, people know what to do. In a bear market, people know what to do. Uh, and you can make money in both kinds of markets, as, as you guys know better than anybody. But um, what if there's genuine uncertainty? What if you just don't know which way this is going? And then what do you do? Well, that's when people sell out and head to the sidelines, which is you know not good for the economy and not good for the market. So we may be getting closer to that that kind of point, and, and things get very unpredictable, very nasty. And then there's a tipping point where both sides are realizing they're going for the throat, so you kind of accelerate the process. So who's going to sting first? Correct. Who's going to sting first? Uh, even though you, everyone loses. So my view is that this is going to get more intense, more nasty. We are going to see some real uh, impeachment action and some real indictments. It's going to be exciting, huh? Yeah, well, be, yeah, good good for uh, ratings. <laughs> good for ratings. <laughs> and so one more thing. You mentioned, uh, she wasn't she attorney general or something, Loretta? Lynch. Loretta Lynch was the attorney. And she was friends with Clinton. Uh, yeah, well, she was good enough friends to meet him in a in a private Airplane. jet on a yeah. tar- tarmac. By the way, that would have gone undetected, but for the fact that there was it was in Arizona. It was here met, in Phoenix, yeah. Right in Phoenix, and there was just happened to be a journalist who was there covering some other story. He's like, oh, that looks like Clinton. Uh, so he he reports this, but otherwise it would have gone unreported. It certainly wasn't scheduled, and you wonder how many times the the yeah. elites are meeting in the private jets. And t- this probably goes on. I'm sure it does go on all the time. Uh, so. Um, so that comes out, and then they were talking about the grandkids or something, according to them. But uh, <laughs> but you put somebody under oath and put it in front of a grand jury and see what they say. Yeah. So, and you you talk about the elites, okay? And in your yep. book, you talk about the elites have wealth preservation, how they protect their wealth. Right. How is it different from the everybody else? Well, it starts with gold. I I know uh, I don't know just because of my experience in hedge funds and living for decades in you know Darien, Connecticut, which is a very wealthy town and right next door to Greenwich and worked in Greenwich for 20 years. So I, I guess I know enough billionaires. I've never met one who doesn't have a large holding of physical gold. Now, not ETFs. Not, not ETFs. Now, they might trade ETFs in their funds. They might trade stocks and bonds and currencies all day long. But when you, if you know them well enough and you say, well, what do you do with your own money? It's, it's uh, yeah, they got stock portfolios, but it's heavy on real estate and gold uh, and fine art and other hard assets. Uh, I you know I don't believe in going overboard. My recommendation has always been you know ten percent gold. Ten percent is small enough that you won't get hurt, and big enough that you'll be protected if everything else fails. To me, that's the right number. But um, it's amazing how even and I, I talk about this in the book in in aftermath how even the smartest richest people in the world. By the way, there's no correlation between smart and rich. You can be both, but <laughs> not not automatically. But um, so you say, well, where's your gold? Say, oh, I got a place in New Zealand. I got a silo. I got bodyguards. I, and all my gold's in New Zealand. So how are you going to get there? I got a private jet. Uh-huh. How are you going to fuel your private jet when the power grid's down? Uh, is your probably going to go with you and leave his family behind? Um, can you refuel in Hawaii? I mean, people actually don't think these things all the way through. They think they've got it figured out, but they don't. I've done some disaster planning for the Pentagon, and uh, – they have these plans to evacuate Washington. I said, look, you can't get out of Washington on a normal day. 
Yeah. <laughs> see the traffic on the Memorial Bridge in D.C. Uh, how are you going to get out in a panic? And the answer is bicycles and motorcycles. But you really have to think things through. The other thing we mentioned earlier was about how the, when you were in business school, they stopped teaching gold. Right. Would you mind mentioning that? Uh, right. And, uh, yeah, business school applies, uh, but even uh, economics program. I was a, a graduate a student in uh, international economics. I, ha- I was class of 74. And everyone says, well, Nixon went off the gold standard in 1971. Yeah, but what Nixon thought he was doing, he didn't think he was going off the gold standard. He said, I'm temporarily suspending. I I spoke to two of the the small group of people who were at Camp David that weekend, August 15, 1971. One of them was Paul Volcker. The other one was uh, Ken Dam, uh, Kenneth Dam, uh, later dean of the University of Chicago Law School, uh, acting secretary of the Treasury on uh, on 9-11. They they all thought, and then Volcker and, and Dan both said to me that this was temporary. It was a timeout, so you could devalue the dollar, reset it, and then go back to the gold standard. Well, that never happened, uh, but they thought that was what was going to happen. So it was they really kind of stumbled and bumbled their way for a few years from 71 to 74, but it wasn't until 1974 that the IMF officially kind of demonetized gold. Well, that's when I was in school. And so we didn't know how it was going to turn out, so we had to learn it. So I studied gold as a monetary asset, as a monetary reserve, at a time when that was still the prevailing orthodoxy. And France was the last one to cave in. France wanted the gold standard. Um, but so I tell people, if you're younger than I am and you know anything about gold, you're either self-taught or you went to mining college. Because after 1974, universities stopped teaching it, period. So we're now at a point where we have two generations of you know younger scholars right. who have come along who know nothing about gold in a monetary context. Um, and that makes it easier for the government to propagandize and promote fiat money systems that are not stable. Which just is, which is brings up again in the aftermath. You talk about Nixon took us off the gold standard in 781. In my book, Fake, it was 782. I was flying behind enemy lines looking for gold right. in Vietnam. But in 72, I went on the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And you said the same thing in aftermath. You should set yourself up on your own gold standard outside the banking system. Right. I talk about this in the introduction because um, I have a, a section that uh, I think deservedly so is very praiseworthy of uh, President Gerald Ford. And Ford is often an object of ridicule. I think he was coming off the steps of Air Force One and tripped, and Chevy Chase took that to yeah. Saturday Night Live. And ever since then, you know, Ford's been portrayed as this kind of bumbler, and he did uh, lose uh, his reelection effort in 1976 to, uh, to Jimmy Carter. But if you actually explore Ford's biography, he was a uh, you know, brilliant student, uh, an all American athlete, yeah. uh, football champion. Um, and he, but he did two things. And I also talked about. Uh, you know, you have these historical rankings. Who were the 10 greatest presidents or who were all the presidents ranked in order of importance or achievement? And they're usually done by liberal scholars. But um, but it changes <laughs> over time. Harry Truman was like way down in the pack. He was a disaster. We look at Harry Truman today. He's in the top five along with FDR, um, Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln, Washington and uh, and uh, Eisenhower. Actually, Eisenhower's come out of nowhere. He, Eisenhower is now one of our top ranked presidents. Right. So you have to – there's a recency bias where, you know, Obama was great because, well, we just got through Obama. We'll see where he is in 30 years. I don't know. But but these things do move around. But a guy who's in the middle of the pack that I think should be much higher, much closer to the top is Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford did two things that are greatly underestimated. One was the Helsinki Accords. The Helsinki Accords, everyone's like it was a betrayal of 
Eastern Europeans in the United States because we recognized some borders that had been imposed by the Soviet Union. That was our part of the deal. But at the same time, we got the Soviet Union for the first time in writing to sign a treaty that says we recognize human rights. And that platform led to um, uh, you know, Lech, Valen Lech Valenza, uh, Pope John Paul II got involved. That human rights platform led to all the revolution and uh, counter-revolution pushback and protest that eventually led to the destruction of the Soviet Union. So I don't think you can say, well, that just kind of happened. Helsinki was the was the portal that opened the door to that, and that was Gerald Ford's accomplishment. But the other thing he did, for the first time since 1933, gold became legal for United States citizens to own. From 1933 to, uh, to 1975, Sorry, 1933, 1975. It was contraband. It was like right. you know, drugs or machine guns. You, I, you, I, had to smuggle my, you, I had to smuggle my Kruger in in the <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you couldn't have it. Period. But beginning, but because of a bill that Ford signed in 1975, gold became legal. And to your point, Robert, people say we don't have a gold standard. You can have your own gold standard. Right. You 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 are free to take dollars as you choose and buy gold as much or as little as you want. Uh, you know, put it in a safe place. Don't put it in a bank deposit box because that'll be the first place that gets locked down and frozen out. Um, when you need it, you won't be able to get it. But the point is, uh, if the country's not on a gold standard, that may be too bad. But you can be on a personal gold standard right. and preserve wealth just by buying gold. And anybody can do that. Correct. This is the final, final. I could talk to you for Once again, the book is called Aftermath. you got to read the book. It goes into more stuff about debt to GDP ratios and all that, which is terrifying. But I also heard you another talk. You talk about how... You know, that we have, we have this Trump and his tariffs and all this stuff going on with Mexico, you know, and stuff like this. But you also talk about what's going on between China, Russia, and the U.S. Mm -hmm. And in your talk, you said something about if you're, the, if you're sitting at a poker table and you don't know who the patsy is, you're the patsy. Correct. So right now, from, I, I believe you were saying that it's Russia, China, and the U.S. are playing cards right now. Right. And who's the patsy? Well, if if we don't know, it's us. And and that's that's the point, Robert, which is um, uh, as far as, you know, again, I have a background in international relations and geopolitics before I even got into economics and then had a long career in finance. So it's always been an international finance. So this merger of uh, capital markets, you know, stocks, bonds, derivatives, currencies, commodities, et cetera, on the one hand, and geopolitics, which is national security, intelligence, military affairs, geopolitics, on the other they're merging. It's like a Venn diagram, two big circles that are merging. And here's the, here's the problem. There's always been some connection, but that overlap is getting larger. It's, it's hard to talk about geopolitics without talking about economics. And it's impossible to talk about capital markets without talking about geopolitics. They're not separate at all. They're merging. You've got brilliant people on both sides. You can go over Wall Street, find all the PhDs and the quants and the and, and, you know, the egg has you want, and you get a national security. I deal a lot with the military. I mean, these people are brilliant. They make it proud to be an American. I mean, a major or a colonel or even, a, you know, a brigadier general. They've, a lot of them have multiple master's degrees. Some have PhDs, speak five languages. These are not, uh, uh, you know, the way they're portrayed. They're actually brilliant. The problem is who's good at both? You know, great people on the geopolitical side, great people on Wall Street, but who can get up from a, a vault in the Pentagon from a classified meeting fly to Wall Street, walk into a boardroom, and you know, talk to business people or investors uh, in their language. Very few. That's a relatively scarce resource. That's what I do. There, there's some others, um, you know, Ian Bremmer, Pippa Malgram, uh, myself. But this is it's an expanding area with a small group. And you have to see both sides of this to really make sense of what's going on.
So you, the U.S. is the patsy right now. Russia and China. There are only are, three countries that really matter: Russia, China, and the United States. And everyone goes, "Ah, Russia, you know, they're like the twelfth largest economy, and uh, it's a one-trick pony with commodities, and you know, Putin's a thug, and uh, and the population is declining. So why do we care about Russia? They are the largest physical country in the world. They, along with Saudi Arabia and the U.S., they're one of the three largest energy producers in the world. Um, they uh, have. Uh, the largest nuclear arsenal in the world, larger than the United States. Uh, they're, they're a geopolitical giant. Uh, I don't care how much you want to disparage Putin, the good guy, bad guy. He's, he's obviously, uh, um, you know, he knows how to play rough. But my point is you can't uh, pursue foreign policy without taking Russia into account. And aren't, aren't Russia and China doing more and more deals together? Well, that's, that's the point, Kim. That's exactly right. So three-handed poker game, Russia, China, the United States, the way poker works if you play the game. Two people will gang up on the other, clean them out, and then they'll fight with each other for the rest of the pot. <laughs> but if you if you don't know who the sucker is, you're the sucker. And you're going back to Kissinger, even before Kissinger, and through, um, yeah, I'll say even even you know, Bill Clinton and and, uh, and the Bushes, um, we always were closer to one side than the other to isolate the the odd man out. So. In this, in the um, you know, beginning of 1972, we opened up to China. We wanted to be buddies with China as a way of derailing the Soviet Union. But after 1991, we kind of cozied up to the Soviet Union to derail China. That's not always the same partner. You might have to switch sides. That's politics. But we were the United States was very good under Kissinger and Baker and others of aligning with one of those powers to diminish the ability of the third. But under starting with uh, with Obama. Um, we have no friends. We've completely, you know, the Democrats don't even want to talk about right? Russian collusion, all this stuff. Well, fine. If you don't want to talk to Russia, fine. But now we're in a huge financial war with China because they're trying to undermine us. So we're not friends with China. We're not friends with Russia. But they're friends with each other, which was your point, Kim. And uh, what they're doing, I talk about this in the book, uh, you know, all your Bitcoin people, you know, Bitcoin, I say, forget Bitcoin. Um, but don't forget cryptocurrencies. Russia and China are working on the technology for uh, cryptocurrency. It's what's called a permissioned system, which means that not everybody can get in. It's like a club. They have to let you in. Um, it'll be a new coin. It won't be Bitcoin. Call it a Putin coin or Xi coin or whatever, backed up by gold. Russia has almost, almost quadrupled its gold reserves since 2009. It's gone from 600 tons to today around uh, 2,100 tons, you know, on its way to higher amount. China, same thing. China's less transparent. We have to do some estimating, but they're in the same place. Why are they buying all this gold? Are they stupid? Or do they see something coming that we don't? Well, I have friends in Russia and China. They're not stupid. They see something coming that most people don't. And so um, so you, you start this cryptocurrency. So now, to your point, Kim, China sells, uh, you know, critical infrastructure to Russia. Russia sells weapons to China. Iran sells oil to China. Uh, North Korea sells missiles to Iran. Everybody goes to Turkey for vacation because it's a nice country. But the point is you have this trading network with all these reciprocal buys and sells. Instead of denominating it in dollars, which has been the case, you denominate it in this new cryptocurrency. It's just a way to keep score. It could be baseball cards, but you just keep score. And then periodically you settle up. So I ran a deficit with you. I owe you money or you have a deficit with Kim and you owe Kim money or whatever. But the point is, the net payment is always much smaller than the gross payment. If you had to pay for every shipment real time, that's gross. But if we just keep score in this cryptocurrency and net it down, that's a much smaller payment. And we, we, we settle up in gold. 
Hmm. Not the crypto. Hmm. Crypto is a way to keep keep score. You don't have to move the gold around. You could, but you can you know station it in Switzerland and just change the name tags or whatever, which is what has been done uh, in the past. But what's missing from that economic system? Dollars. There's no dollars in the whole thing. It's cryptocurrencies, gold, netting, and a permission private system. This is not. Uh, I know you're not just a fan, but a student uh, protege of Buckminster Fuller, and uh, uh, you, you like good, solid uh, predictions, Robert. But I'll say this: what I just described, it's 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 not a prediction; it's happening. Now, it's not it's not all the way here. They're working on the blockchain. They're working on the cryptocurrencies. They're working on everything I just described. So this is the future, a future without dollars. Well, what if you're a dollar-based investor? Where does that leave you? Um, well, the answer is you better think about some other asset classes. And they could be real estate or gold or, or many others. Boy. Wow. <laughs> I could listen to you forever. Once again, as a very, very dear friend, I'll shamelessly promote our upcoming book, is The Ravens, coming out in 2020. And uh, Jim's latest book here is Aftermath. And as you can see, I do study and read. And this book has so much information. And the more I study it, the more I don't know but the clearer I get about what I have to do personally. Any comments? Well, I just thank you, Jim. This is We could go on for hours and hours, and uh, we're such a wealth of information. So I just thank you for your time, and thank you for being here. And, uh, yeah, that, that last piece kind of a little bit of a little bit of a shocker. I mean, that's an eye-opener. Which really the, About China and Russia and the cryptocurrency and the permission and the gold and how much gold they're storing. And uh, how much gold does the U.S. – are they storing more gold? Or? The U.S. has about 8,000 tons, a little bit more, which is uh, fine. It's the most of any one country in the world. But the point is Russia and China are catching up. And if they and as a percentage of their economy, at least in the case of Russia, it's, it's greater. The U.S. Uh, – well, um, gold – to money supply is about 1.7%, but in the case of Russia, it's close to 6%. And is the U.S. accumulating more gold? No, I think we should be. I've, yeah. I've, I've said yeah. to government officials, I said, yeah, you print money and buy bonds, why don't you print money and buy gold? Good point. That's the yeah. personal gold standard. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, thank you very much. I'm, my mind is blown. I thank you all for listening to Rich Dad Radio, and uh, please get Jim's book, Aftermath. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>